0: All right, well, open your Bibles with me to John 14. And in fact, once you open it to John 14, look back a few verses and start at the end of John 13. Our text for today begins in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Typical Peter stuff. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Then he continues And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. All right. It is good to be with you. Good to open that text. If you don't know me, I'm Dawson. I'm one of the members of this church. Love being a member of this church. And I also get to, to lead and, and teach and equip our leaders for ministry. Um, most importantly, I am a son of, King, of the King and uh, would love to get to know you more. Over the last few weeks, as we've kind of gotten close to this move, a few people, like a good handful of people asked me this first Sunday, are we going to do like a big, like, like a vision sermon and like a big, like outlaying of the path forward? And I was like, no, no, don't have anything super special planned. We we're in a, this I am series where we're looking at the I am sayings of Jesus and we're going to be on the sixth one. That's our plan for that Sunday. Uh, I'm not a huge, I should say, I'm no longer a big fan of, of hype. And I, uh, I just, I'm getting old in my mid-30s, but I, I used to be big on hype, and I'm not so much big on hype anymore, especially in terms of like church leadership. I think it's kind of like a monster energy drink where it works for a little while, but then you just got to have another one because you crash. And so I'm not big on hype. But that being said, as I opened this text and thought about the fact that we are beginning a little bit of a new chapter, I recognize, oh, this is a great text for us to begin again. It is a text about home, has been kind of alluded to just a little bit in his introductory uh, stuff. It's a text about our true home. It's a text about the way home. And so I say I'm not big on hype and I'm not, but I actually am really glad that we get to start our time here in this text and Jesus's vision for what it means to have communion with him. And I also just recognize over the last few weeks, that this is a text that really has highlighted a lot of deep work that the Father's done in me over the last half decade. So I kind of wanted to just let you know that that's there because it might come out at certain times, you're like, oh, he is kind of excited about these things. So I want to start with this question, or actually a definition. I recently heard uh, this definition of spiritual maturity. Um, there's a lot of definitions. This one's not comprehensive. It's not necessarily complete, but I think it's helpful. And so I want to throw it up here and see, uh, see how it hits you guys. So here's a definition of spiritual maturity. Am I becoming a person of love to the people that know me best and that I interact with the most? <laughs> Might be a surprising definition of maturity or mat- maturation, but I like a few things about it. Um, a person of love to the people that know me best and that I interact with the most. It's, uh, it's easy To be a person of love, like to me, if we hang out once, you know, a couple weeks for an hour and a half, it's very different to be spontaneously a person of love to those people that have to be with you all the time, right? Your spouse, your kids, perhaps your coworkers, um, maybe your neighbors, if you, you know, live in that kind of proximity, maybe you don't. But I just wanted to throw it up up there. Am I increasingly becoming a person of love to the people that know me best and that I interact with the most? Throw out a question for you guys. Do you want that? Even if you don't feel like you're becoming that, do you want that? And then maybe thirdly, if you do want that, what's your plan to become that person, like if you could map quest, map quest. I don't know where that came from. But like ancient, dated. If you could map, I think it's because it's the uh, the like the steps, right? If you could map quest your journey to spiritual maturity, at least to this partial definition of becoming a person of love, what what does it look like? What are the steps? And big pivot, what? does that have to do with the text that we just read, this, this, this little moment of Jesus with his disciples? So if you have John 14, open it up again, John 13, if you're, if you're not exactly sure what's happening, uh, we are at the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he gets arrested and gets crucified. It's called sometimes that the John 13 to 17 is called the Upper Room Discourse because it's Jesus talking, discoursing with his disciples. Uh, Sometimes called Last Supper because it's their last meal together. So they're having this this conversation. A lot of Jesus's like most viral one-liners from the Gospel of John come from this passage. There's a lot of stuff there that Very quotable Jesus. One of them is this phrase that the KJV, the King James Version, that old version uh, of English translation of the Bible that we used for a very long time. Verse 2, it translated, In my Father's house are many mansions. Do you know that? My Father's house are many mansions. Maybe you've heard that. I thought of a lot of songs that have been made around this. Like when I, if, you're, if you're around the church, and it's fine if you weren't, but I was around the church. Uh, and even though I was growing up in Eastern Europe, I heard these different songs, little kid songs. In my father's house are many mansions. Like that was one. And then in my later teen years, there was this kind of scob Song that said it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. I don't know if you remember that one, but we have like all these songs and very, I would say, not the best art, but like subculture of evangelical art. These songs about this big old house, and and potentially because of the KGV translation and because of these songs and all that, I just you know when I th- when I hear this verse, I think of Jesus and some sort of big old boots and a you know a tool belt and he's up there on the rafters he's building away which isn't necessarily a bad picture there is this picture but i don't think i don't believe i'm actually convinced that that's not the entirety of what we are meant to be thinking about when he says i go to prepare this place i'm going to ask for two permissions To do a little bit of language stuff. I usually would only ask for one, but today I'm going to do two. So we're going to look at a Greek word right now. That Greek word that is mansion, I want to just look at it for for a second. The Greek word for mansion is Monet, like the painter. Can you say Monet? Say it. Monet. Okay. Monet is that word uh, for mansion. There's a verb that is kind of the verb correspondent to the noun that is meno. Can you say meno? Meno. men-o. All right. Meno, you can throw up the next slide. The, the definition is to make home. It's a really cool verb. Often it's translated as to abide, to remain. But it means like to, to make home. We're actually going to look at that verb next week when Jesus says, I'm the vine, remain in me. It's a verb. But this noun is the corresponding noun to that verb. And so the definition that that we can put on the noun, you can throw it up with different translations, depending on which Bible you're holding up, uh, the ESV that I just read is going to say, my father's house are many rooms Some translations would say, in my father's house are many dwelling places, or uh, in my father's house are many resting places. In other words, in my father's house is much home for you. There's a lot of space for you. I go to prepare a place for you, and there's going to be a lot of room for you. And the question is, how is he going to do that? What does it look like? A guy named F.F. Bruce, who is about as orthodox as you can get. He's like British a hundred years ago as a professor and a preacher. And I'm kind of name dropping just so you don't think I'm doing my own thing, whatever I want to do with this this chapter. F.F. Bruce says, John's really unique. John, the gospel of John, he says, this is the quote, the distinction between Jesus's resurrection and his coming again are not very clear. Sometimes when Jesus talks, you're not quite sure. What does he mean? Does he mean when I come back again, I'm gonna do this for you? Or when I go to the cross and and die and raise again? And his point is, in this passage, Jesus is almost certainly talking about both. He's sitting with his disciples at the last supper and he's telling them, I'm about to go do something and he's going to go to the cross. And why is he going to the cross? To make some room for us to be with God again. Isn't that beautiful? And it grips me a lot more than just Jesus, the carpenter up on a, a rooftop. That's true. It's absolutely true, but Jesus is about to go do something that's going gonna, gonna to be a, a pivot of, of history for us to be with God once again. The only other time that the New Testament uses this word Monet uses this word home, is in this same chapter. Jesus is going to use it just a few verses later in verse 23. You can throw that up there. Look at this. The only other time, John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and mone with him and make our home with him. So it absolutely is that one day for all eternity, there will be room for us. But it also is what Jesus is saying is right now, I'm going to leave this table and I'm going to go make room for you to be in communion with God once again, right now. That's Jesus' vision for you. Now back to like this vision of spiritual maturity that I put up there. If you were to ask other people to describe those people, those people that are closest to you, if you're a Jesus follower, if you happen to be a Jesus follower, if you were to ask those people that are closest to you, would you just tell me, tell me what you love about Dawson, about you? Would at the top of their list, after they kind of think for a second, they say, you know what? I got to just lead out with, they are a person in which God is at home in. They are a person which is clear that the Father and the Son, the Spirit, just make their home in Him. And the divine love just kind of oozes out of them. And I say that to say it's almost kind of crazy. Like, I would love for someone to say that about me, and I don't think, winking at my wife, that's the first thing that people are going to say. But it is literally Jesus' vision. For us. Now, here's a little bit of as I was just sitting with this and like, oh man, I'm glad I get we get to talk about this on our first Sunday in a new space. Why is this important for Selma? Why is this important for the American church? Um, the term evangelical, you know, over the last 20 years has kind of gone from like meaning a little bit of something to meaning something a little different, to kind of now in the United States meaning it's kind of like something kind of ugly, to be honest, right? And the term Christian is kind of almost synonymous every once in a while. Uh, There's been a, I like looking at the polls just to see like what's the landscape. And a lot of polls will put out numbers that still around 60% of Americans say that they are Christians. But then when you get um, someone who does, it's, it's hard to do this, but people who kind of do the hard work of quantifying, well, how many people are actually like following in the way of Jesus, both in belief, but also practice? It's like around the, this one study, two studies, one by Barna and one out of uh, a college in Arizona, put it at around 4% of the people. And the one that put a, uh, one of them, they had a, a poll right before COVID and right after, and it went from 6% to 4%. Now, there could be some margin of error there, but for sure, there's a huge difference between 63% and 4 to 5 to 6%. People in our cultural moment, our cultural context, they have categories and paradigms for eternal life and eternal life with God and probably even assume that they have it. But when, it's, when you start talking about life now, that on Jesus' terms is, is life where we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, we lose our life, and we also get home with Jesus packaged in, it's a, there's a huge divide. Um, John Mark Comer is a, He used to be a pastor in Portland. He writes a lot on that kind of gap. He just released a book, Practicing the Way, and I read it over the last couple of weeks, and so I'm going to ooze a little bit of uh, Comer's findings throughout today. But he wrote, um, I think I have a quote for him, he wrote that, and he's not the first one to say this, he's actually quoting someone else, that since World War II, the gospel has been preached in a way that you could become a Christian— without becoming a follower of Jesus, or a disciple of Jesus, or an apprentice of Jesus. Today, we're looking at this chapter, this this chapter in, in John, where Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you to be at home with the Father forever, but it starts now. And if you love me, if you keep my word, my Father and I, and the Helper, we will make our home In you now. Back in the 90s, when I was a kid, before Netflix, we had a small catalog, I lived in Eastern Europe, of VHS tapes in English. And one of those tapes was like a nature documentary. And it wasn't like, you know, David Attenborough on Netflix and all the, you know, 30, it was one tape. So I remember that really well because we watched it again and again. But there was one a uh, piece on the salmon run. But, and I was living in Eastern Europe, and, and this, this uh, thing about the salmons was like North uh, California and Oregon and Washington, so it's kind of cool. It's like our neck of the woods. But scientists studying salmon, different species of salmon, and how they come home, right? How they come home. And you guys know this. You've seen different, different uh, stats on this. But salmon, you know, they are able to make the journey like thousands of miles to their, like to, 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 to home. And then, and and every, when I was a little kid and still to this day, it's like, how do they do that? is the question. Like, how do they make their way home? Very reminiscent to Thomas's question in here that we read as Jesus is saying home, you will get there. Thomas, what's his question? How do we get there? Like, how do we get there? And with, uh, with these salmon, and I almost was going to play the video, but it's like super grainy, and it would have been too long. So I'm just going to recap it, OK? With the salmon, um, they had this one, this one little uh, experiment that they did, and I, they made really clear that they didn't hurt the salmon. So I wanted to tell you that as well, because you're going to be like, this doesn't sound great for the salmon. But they, they took some salmon, they took a Chinook salmon, uh, anesthetized them, and electrodes attached to the portions of its brain. I know, but it didn't hurt the salmon. They said that. And they, 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 uh, they attached it to the portion of the brain that controls the olfactory organs, like their sense of smell, right? And they had a couple of samples. One were like streams from far away. The other were like streams from fairly close, but not where they were from. And then the third one was like, they have it labeled home, okay? And they just would put it on their noses, and then they attached them to, I think it's like, fMRI machine. You can throw up the first picture right there. And you know, you've seen these, little, these little, uh, little robot arm with a pencil. So this is the control sample, one of the first two. The first two looked really similar. They, they put it off. Uh, they, they put this water in there, and, and the little, the little uh, arm makes this like, sh- and you can hold this slide they go to the second one it's also like a similar place but it's not their home and does the same thing again it's like Shh, sh-t, sh-t, sh-t. and then and there's like this build up 90s music happening in this documentary then they go and they put water from their home on the salmon this is why i wanted to show you the video but I, it just goes Shh, sh-t, 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 sh-t. and it, it just you can go to this next slide they just wrote down this, these excited scientists, home exclamation part right, right there. And it, it, the sound of it has stuck with me for like 20 years. It goes from shh, shh, shh to shh shh, 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 And somehow these salmon, something in their bodies and their nervous system and their being, when they get a sense of home, the sense of smell, their minds and their bodies just go crazy and they want to get back home. Now Jesus Is coming to his disciples, their disciples want to follow him. They don't know how to get home. (laughs) But they're like, Can you tell us how it works? And Jesus says, What? Our text for the day: I am the way, the truth, and the life. So for like hundreds of years, God's people have been like trying to get home. the salmon analogy is going to break down a little bit. Okay. It's not going to work perfectly because there's all these other guiding things. People are trying to figure out how do we get home? And Jesus is saying, my desire for you is that you would walk in my way, that you would understand that I am the truth and that you believe that I am the life so that it would be your natural response that you like the salmon. When you get a, gl- a glimpse of the Jesus life, the Jesus way your body, your mind, your heart goes, sh- 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 this is the way. This is the way. I love this vision that Jesus has. I love his care. And I wanted to spend, I spent half of our time on that. And I want to spend the second half of our time on what does that mean? What does it mean that he is the way, the truth, and the life? How can we know the way Thomas says, Jesus says, I will, I will tell you. So we're going to go, actually, let's just pause real quick. I'd like you to do a little check. Do you long for that? Do you, would you, would you let Jesus show you the way to, to invite you back? Not just waiting for eternity to be In the room with God, but now, and that it would reshape us. So Jesus gives this one line three pictures, three metaphors the way, the truth, and the life. I told you guys I asked for an allowance of two Greek lessons. Here's the second one, okay? The way. This word is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. It was the original name for like the community of Jesus followers. Christian was actually like first a derogatory term. It was like the people, like Romans and others would like say the Christians. It was like those little Christ people. The way was the first name for the community that came out of Jesus's life and teaching. And uh, the the word is hadas. You say that? And it means, you can throw up the definition, it means most literally, it means a road or a path. And if you go through the book of Acts, or if you do a little Google search, you don't have to know Greek to learn a lot about how this works. If you do a little Google search, you'll find that it's all through the book of Acts. It's all through the New Testament. And uniquely in the Gospels, this word is used often in, like, double entendre, like two ways. You'll have a little line that says something like um, that uh, the disciples were on the road with Jesus. And in that, using that word, it's like, oh, oh, ah, nifty, I see what you did there. Like, are you saying that they were literally walking behind him? Or are you saying that they're like part of the way of Jesus, like on this road of Jesus? And usually it's like, Exactly. It's both. They were like with him and they're becoming part of the way of Jesus, but they're, they're on the road. Jesus, like many rabbis, invited some disciples and said, what's the two big words? He said, follow me. I will show you the way. Be with me. Learn with me. And again, the distinction and the, the stuff that I felt like, oh, this is so good for our church over the last few years, we've been learning about this is that Jesus's way, when he commissions us to make disciples, is is not to shift to a different curriculum, but to keep doing what he did. Inviting people into a way of life where we experienced the embodied spirit of God in all of life. So he does say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But we often, we meaning, again, just a secular not secular, a Western, uh, context. We, we've often, we do, we do pretty well with like, I am the truth, but we don't exactly know what even means by I am the way. Um, again, John Mark Comer quotes, Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson says, Peterson says it really articulately the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. And you can go to the next slide. Jesus, the truth, gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among the Christians with whom I have worked for 50 years as a North American pastor. What what Jesus is, when he's saying I am the way, if you want to learn, remember, let's stick with the salmon metaphor. Remember this like, if you want to learn what it means to be with God, to become a kind of person that God loves to be with, follow me, join me. I will show you the way. He doesn't give them a list of teachings. He doesn't give them a list of practices. He says, I am the way. Now, again, I said I didn't like hype, but over the last few weeks as I was thinking about this, thinking about our journey together, Soma, I want to throw out something, that I probably share with a few of you. It's been really deeply meaningful to me, but I think it's a, a little bit of a, a good paradigm for churches and for the Western church. And for some of you, this might not be exciting. So that's okay. Just bear with me. We'll come back. But for some of you, if you've especially been a leader uh, in a church or if you've, if you've tried to serve the church, if you have this desire to grow I want to just offer this as something that might be helpful to us as we embark on a new journey and we're in the new building and we're trying to ask, like, what really matters? What really matters for us as we go forward? Um, There's a book called The Critical Journey, Stages in the Life of Faith. It came out, I think, in about the 80s, which is one of many, probably like countless uh, descriptions of what does it look like to mature as a Jesus follower? like in the context of what we're talking about today, to increasingly find your home with God. What does it look like for a person to mature, to become more a spiritually mature person? There's been, like I said, there's actually been countless um, descriptions. All of them are theories. There's no like roadmap in the New Testament to this. Teresa of Avila has a really famous one in the 15th century where she just talks about what she's experienced and what she saw in the, the lives of her fellow nuns and other men. Like, I think this is how we progress. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of them. But this one is one that I just, I want to offer to you guys. And I heard this probably seven or eight years ago. I was doing a residency to become, um, to to just a pastoral residency as I was, looking to move to Eastern Europe to do pastoral work. And I remember going through this, and I was like, okay, that's helpful. I like it. It's a nifty little paradigm. And then over the last five years, now when I talk about this with someone, it's more like, this is like really meaningful to me because it's kind of been grounded in life. And so this is what it looks like. The critical journey, this is theory again, it's not chapter and verse. I've said like three times. I don't want any of you guys to get upset, but it's been helpful to me. The critical journey, this first part is not controversial at all. We all start with some sort of awakening, this recognition of God. Like God. The kind of evangelical term for this is you got saved. See God, right? So recognition of God. There's a lot of wonder in this stage. It's good. Uh, You could also kind of be a little pink cloudy, if you know what I mean by that. Like everything's amazing. God has been so faithful to me. Thank you, Jesus. That's good. That's great. Wonder is a, a big component. Second stage, you're like, okay, I'm impressed with God. Teach me everything I need to know. And it's this life of learning. They actually sometimes call it life of discipleship. I don't like using that word because I think that means something else. Life of learning. It's like, okay, I've awakened to this God. I see there's like some culture here that you guys do in the church. Teach me everything. I would sit down with you at Starbucks. Give me the information. So there's this life of learning. And you learn and you learn. And and it's a lot of good stuff. You learn by opening this book. At this stage of your journey, it's probably really important because there's a lot of other rabbis in this world saying, follow me. Let me tell you what I think about the world. So you need to open up this book and have this stage of learning. The third stage is the productive life. It's a stage of Jesus follower where I've been awakened to this new life. I've learned as much as I can, and I'm ready to serve. Tell me what I need to do. And we get after it and we're all wired differently uh, some of us, we, we apply it to our vocations and that's really good. And we've done a lot of teaching on that. You suddenly see your work is like, I can run my business this way. Or some people, um, figure out what it means for them to serve within their giftings in the, in the church. Uh, some of you, if I can, you know, you begin to lead missional communities, or maybe you became a, a deacon and you're, and you get after it and you live this productive life. Um, and, and, Some ways you've been introduced to God, you want to learn a lot about him, and now you want to work for him. Like, put me to work. Now, the reason I put this paradigm up is simply because um, sometimes in in the church, this is the end of what it means to, that's like, that's the path, that's the way, that's the journey. And the problem is, is that it works until life happens to you. It works until life gets very lifey. It works until you hit what they call the wall. And for some of us, it's wall, wall, and then another wall, and then five more walls. And basically, what used to work doesn't work anymore. It doesn't mean that you've necessarily lost belief in God, but you used to have all this energy, and now you're recognizing you don't. You, You... so you, the wall is often inspired by an event. Perhaps you had a huge failure in life. Perhaps things did not come to fruition the way you want. Perhaps there's a chronic illness of somebody. Perhaps a loved one passed away. Some, for some reason, stuff happened, and what you had up till this point doesn't work. Okay? There's a few options when you hit the wall. One is that you just go back. You're like, I'm done. This is a really good way to explain the phenomenon of deconstruction. Uh, it's people who say, I'm done. This does not work for me anymore. And I would actually tell them, you're absolutely right. But the problem is they're done and, they, and, and they, they're done. And so what, what often happens is people find a new paradigm, by the way, and they go back to a new stage one of something else, new wonder, they learn a lot, and then they're going to have the same problem eventually. But if you press into the wall, again, this is theory, but it's hundreds of years of people describing, this is what happened to me, and over the last five years, I can say, this is what's been happening to me. If you press through the wall, you begin a journey inward. You begin a journey where you, you recognize that though you believed in God, there were a lot of other motivations under, under the Rocks of your heart that led you to that learning, that led you to try to live that productive life. You might recognize that there's stuff in your family of origin that you've never really explored, that there's wounds that happened to you in early experiences of church that you've never really healed from. And the journey inward is painful. The journey inward doesn't mean you're alone, but it is very lonely. The journey inward is sometimes called the dark night of the soul. But if you press into that fourth stage, the journey inward, if you press into Jesus as the way and Jesus's embodied presence with maybe a few other people, you can find healing. You can find that you are surprised that once again, you want to go out again. And the fifth stage is journey outward. And what's crazy about the fifth stage is that from a distance, it looks a lot like stage three to people. What I mean by that is from a distance, somebody who's done all of that inner work, gone to Jesus with all of their frustrations, disappointments, them giving of themselves from a distance looks a lot similar to just somebody who's producing, but it's different. Because for the person who's gone through that wall and the journey inward, there's not as much on the line for them anymore. That success doesn't mean as much. Their failure doesn't mess them up as much. And if you can press through this and continue to let Jesus be the way, even through these dark nights of the soul, you get to the final stage if you're lucky and you get to the, the life of love where that may be I hope by my 60s, I am what I said at the beginning, increasingly spontaneously loving to the people who I'm with the most. Now, I spent a lot of time on that, but I felt like I wanted to give us the freedom to just name that in this little moment. And I've heard different people, this actually was brought up in a podcast recently that was really helpful, and they talked about Uh, It's the Carrie Newhoff podcast, if you want to look at it. Um, Sunday-centric church does really well with stage one, two, three people. But if you do not have people that are ready to live the embodied life that Jesus invited his disciples into, follow me, come with me, let's do the way together, then you're going to be in trouble. And so this is kind of a big deal that we have a new building. In another way, it's like really not that big deal at all because we want to be a kind of church where people live in community, where when life gets lifey, Jesus is where we go. He is our home. We press into, and we'll talk about this very quickly in the last, the two other points, press into who Jesus is for us. Some of you know that we organize, many of you know, into these little groups called missional communities and DNA groups. And I want to say two things. One, that's why we do it, so that we can continue in this journey together. Two, they don't work if you don't work them. If you are not committed to finding people who can help you press through the wall, They do not work at all. And I wish I have like more. I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Peter, I believe, is possible. He's a good example of this. Remember, we started with Peter. We read Peter. Peter's very zealous, very excited. He is very, no, go back. Sorry. He's very stage three Peter. He's very excited. Jesus, we will go with you. I will do anything for you. I will go with you. Jesus corrects him, "No, you will not. You can't. By the way, you're going to deny me 3 times." Jesus is warning Peter, he's going to hit the wall. He's going to deny him. He's going to experience dark night of the soul. Thankfully, Peter is going to work through it. And he's going to emerge. And Peter is just as bold but much more relaxed in his passion, because he's, he's going to emerge as a stage five person in the New Testament, like in the Acts church. He still makes some mistakes. Paul has to correct them a few times. I just want to say that, well, I guess, just trying to steward the rest of our time. Peter, how does Peter find healing? Do you remember after he denies him in John, uh, John's uh, 18, towards the end of John? Jesus, what does he do? He, he invites Peter to breakfast. They sit around a meal together. And Jesus, I'm, I'm not going to read it. I wanted to, but we don't have time. He does correction and connection really well. He sits with Peter around a meal. And Peter, I mean, it's really clear. He's He's struggling. He's he's hit the wall. He does correction and connection. He asks him in a very embodied way with food. Tells him to feed the sheep three times, and he ends that. If I should have just read it, he ends it with saying, "Follow me." That's the last words again of that. And there's something uh, there's something that psychologists now talk about quite a bit because we're learning a lot about our brains called somatic empathy. And Jesus does this throughout. He does it with Peter around the campfire. You know what empathy is. I see you. Somatic empathy is I am with you and I'm not going away. And when Jesus says, I am the way, when Jesus sits down around the fire with Peter and says, let's heal up together, he's doing this somatic empathy. And I just want to drop that in because that's easy for us to remember, right? Our name is Soma. And I just want to invite us to become a church where people, if you remember the, the, the six stages, where people experience Jesus's somatic empathy, where we press in around dinner tables, in our homes, in our fire, uh, around a fireplace, when life gets lifey to provide healing and to direct people back to the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus uses two other metaphors. We will be much quicker with these two. He says, I am the truth, and I am the life. Quicker because we needed the time with the way. That's the one we miss. But these are not less important. The truth. As soon as you start, as soon as you start talking about the truth, you get into a what's called epistemology, which is like the theory of knowledge. How do we know truth? And uh, I was talking to one of our teaching elders, Ben, about this. It's like, man, I want to do a whole nother thing on how do we know truth. Like, that's so important for this day because everyone's like, I have my truth. Let me speak my truth. Like, speak, share your truth. And he, uh, in a great way, he was always very helpful when I bring stuff up. He's like, yeah, it's also an ancient problem. You know, this is the original uh the original confrontation between Plato and the sophists. And I was like, yes, that's right, isn't it? Uh, tell me more. Just, I know, but tell me again. And um, I actually did study philosophy, and I should have remembered. But um, Plato and the sophists, they had it's the ancient argument where the sophists are saying, no, we cannot know universally truth. It's subjective. And Plato's saying, no, that's ridiculous. There has to be truth, but Plato introduces this character saying, if only we had this philosopher king who could like guide all the subjects into truth. That's what we need. Yes, the world is crazy. It's really hard to parse out, but it's not because there's no truth. It's just that we don't have a guide. He said that 300 years, 250 years before Jesus came. The true philosopher king, right? Who not only says, I am the way, live with me. I will somatic empathize with you and help you figure out stuff. I am also the truth. He doesn't say, I will tell you the truth. He says, I am the truth. The truth is a person. He's not only the way, he is the truth. And Soma, as we figure out the way with Jesus, recognize that there is truth and there is falsehood. And we have many rabbis, like I said, most of them are in our, on, in our pocket on our phone. This is Jesus' model for following the person of Jesus as our truth. You can throw up the slide that looks like another chemistry thing. Yep. Jesus wants you to go to him as a person for truth, but he is not leaving us fumbling around in the dark. He gives us three things that I believe, and for hundreds of years people have believed. This is how it works. You find the truth that is in Jesus through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. And as soon as you take one of those away, you are in deep trouble. They only work together. You cannot say, I'm good at this, not so good at this, because you get in deep trouble. If you are just a word person, we are like, really big into saying it's all here, it's sufficient. But if you only take, if, you, if it's just Dawson and the Bible, then we end up doing what um, one of my favorite teachers, David Helm, calls. I'm looking if I have the quote, I don't, I don't have it directly. We end up doing with the Bible, he says, we do with the Bible what a drunk does with a lamppost. Instead of standing under it for illumination, we like just lean on it for support. If you alone hold the Bible, you're gonna get into deep trouble. If you alone are going to the spirit for truth, here's the news. It's not his way, it's your way. Like you can't have, you can't be like the spirit led me and that's the way it is. That just never works that way. It's not his way, it's your way. And if you... Just do community without those three. You're probably starting a cult, okay? But together, the embodied presence of Jesus through his people, the clarity that comes through his word and his spirit that's alive means that today, as we navigate what it means to come home to Jesus, the way and the truth, we know. The person of Jesus speaks that way. He is the way and the truth. And I want to encourage you press in to people that you trust to correct you. I was just speaking to one of my dearest friends in our church. We're having a late fire pit night talking about what Jesus has been teaching us. And he said something super wise. He said, I'm, I realize I'm in deep trouble. If I am the most passionate person in the room about my spiritual growth and with Jesus, what he means is I need to make sure I have people in my life who are hungrier for home than I am. And that's why I say do MCs and also work it. Like find the people who can correct you, who can say no, because there are places in your heart where you don't even know you need to go yet. And for me personally, I've done MC Life with my life with my wife for like 15 years, and there's been a lot of fruit. But it hasn't there's been ways in the last five years in which I have pressed into being known by people and said, Would you help me guide me to places the Spirit is leading me? And, and the places I believe the word calls us to and where I'm afraid to go. So I just want to encourage you to that. And finally, and that's that same person, I have this in here. He, he said, you know, it's just like Lord of the Rings. There's the hobbits are trying to like, they want to go together. And the wise people are discussing whether, whether they should send like warriors or Little Hobbits to go along with Little Hobbit Frodo. And Gandalf has this great line. He says, it's better to trust in their friendship rather than great wisdom. And I throw that in there just to say, find friends, good friends who love you. And maybe create some boundaries with other ones. The last one, the life. I want to make sure I'm cutting a few things, but I want to make sure that we, that we get one thing clear. You get like, I'm a little nervous because it could sound like I'm just saying, follow Jesus, experience his presence. Like the working for Jesus isn't important. That's not true at all. The best life, Jesus is all about your best life now. But it includes denying your life, it includes giving up your life, it includes inviting other people to experience your life and mess up your rhythms in your home. It's all connected. Thomas A. Kempis, another 15th century person, says, follow thou me. This is like his reiteration of Jesus. Follow thou me, I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth with that which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. Jesus really is after your best life now, and your best life now is really contagious. And I want to land on this point. People seeing somebody whose home is God. People who see someone who God says, that's my home. That stuff changes neighborhoods and streets and workplaces and cities and countries. And this image from Zechariah 8.23 is one of the best pictures of like the pandemic of like people finding their home going like viral, finding their home in Jesus. Zechariah 8.23 It's talking about the people of God. At that time, many people of all nations and languages will take hold of one Jew. The, just think people of God. Now that's the church. They will grab hold of the hem of his robe and they will say, we want to go to Jerusalem with you because we've heard that God is with you. And I just want to give that image because we've always been about our city, and our neighbors. But one of the most missional things you can do, submit yourself to the way of Jesus. Say, let me make you comfortable in here. And you, God, shape me to where the, the deepest longing of my heart is to be comfortable in you. And it says that the nations will like just grab onto the tip of your coat and say, can we go with you? It's clear that God is with you. So, Soma, as we do this, we're gathered into a new room. I don't know how many more rooms we'll be in in the next couple decades. Let God make room. Recognize that Jesus, through his people, through his Soma, through his word, through his spirit, he really is still inviting us into the way, to the truth, the life, to where our natural response is increasingly like the salmon, when we get a whiff of the life that Jesus offered. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite the band up. And then I wanna invite us into communion. We're probably going to have to go get the kids at some point, but I just want to invite you around communion to just be with some people, not in it. Like, you know, you don't have to like try to do all of that with people like right now. That's the whole point. Like you can't, you gotta, you gotta live it out. Long obedience with some people, but just be with some people, like get the elements. We are in a new room. So, maybe gather with whoever you feel comfortable with. If that's just you by yourself, that's okay. If it's you and your spouse, that's okay. But maybe gather with some people and before you eat and before you drink, say, I do want the way of Jesus. I do want his truth. I do want the life. And let's feast like Peter with Jesus on what Jesus is offering. And then let's go live it out on Monday and Tuesday. Okay? Let's pray. In the band, you guys can come up. Jesus, thank you that you show us the way home, that you are the way. I pray that we would be a church where people can find their way back home. It starts with each of us. I pray that we would be, we each be, people that expect you to care for us, to lead us, to heal us. For those of us who might be struggling with shame to recognize there's a way home. Loneliness, that there's a way home. For those of us just with the trouble of life, maybe chronic pain, that there's a way home. For those of us who've been wounded, perhaps by other Christians or churches that we'd know there's a way home. And help us be a a church where it's not that crazy uh, for people to say, yeah, that person, clearly God is. We know that it's not something that can happen that usually happens instantly. Sometimes. You do things miraculously, but that's what it means to be the church, to slowly walk and follow you and be formed into those kind of people. And one of the ways we do that is by feasting together in this little mini feast of communion. I pray that you be with us now and shape us even as we eat and drink.